As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. We are doing a Spanish word of the day that we're putting on the the refrigerator so that we can learn the Spanish words. And I was going to ask the lady of the house mm-hmm. what the Spanish word for lights is. And so I said, Schmelexa. <clears throat> What is the Spanish word for lights? And there was a little pause, and then she said, this is not the answer. Please try again. (laughs) And I was like, well, that's a weird response, I guess. Um, Okay, so I'll ask again. So I said, Schmalexa, what is the Spanish word for lights? And we have the we have two set up on the counter, and they're supposed to work together. But instead, um, they responded uh, ever so slightly off kilter, so that they were both speaking at the same time, but not at exactly the same time. And they said, "This is this not, is the, not answer. the answer. Please, Please try, try again. again." And then the lights dimmed. This is this not, is the, not answer. the answer. Please, Please try, try again. again. And I swear, I just stood there, mouth agape. Waiting for Skynet to take over. Yeah. I, uh, uh, so I left the house immediately. Right. She and- got on her phone <laughs> and she calls me and uh, she's very concerned that Alexa is gaining self-consciousness <laughs> and that uh, we're, she's about to overthrow our household. What would that possibly be an answer to? What would that be a response to? I don't know. This is not the answer. What do you mean? What's not the answer? What question could I possibly have asked that that would be the appropriate response? The only thing I can think of is that it's some response to a, a specific game that maybe you had played. You were playing the uh, uh, music trivia. Uh-huh. Maybe that's one of the pre-programmed responses. But for no. some reason, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. It's weird. Pretty much uh, we're getting set to bow down to our robot overlords here at the... Uh, Walls Toth household. <laughs> and then, so I made you ask, and she was all, Lucis. <laughs> and I'm like, you yeah. know what? Eat a dick. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I have always found that at times of great distress, like when Alexa is becoming self-aware and plotting the overthrow of your household, mm-hmm. to to do something that you normally do. Um, so I'm gonna do, I'm gonna tell you a story. Yeah, okay. I, I've got something for you <laughs> okay. today. That was a big lead up too. Oh boy, yeah, it was. Uh, and hopefully this won't disappoint. Who doesn't love a good um, time capsule story? I love a time capsule story. As part of the city of Tulsa's Tulsa Rama Golden Jubilee. Week. I love a festival. They were celebrating Oklahoma's 50th year of statehood in 1957. Oklahoma? Mm-hmm. Where the wind comes sweeping down the plain? That's the one. They decided to bury a time capsule as part of the festivities celebrating Oklahoma's 50th year of statehood. Um, since this was a very special occasion, they wanted the time capsule to be special too. So they decided to bury a brand new car for 50 years. They would let people then register to guess what they thought Tulsa's population would be in the year 2007 when they dug the car up. And the person or their heirs with the closest guess would win the car. That's such a fun idea. They decided on a new desert gold and sand dune white two-tone 1957 Plymouth Belvedere Sport Coupe with four miles on it, came right out of the showroom. Wow. Now, they had given away a matching automobile in a separate contest just a few days before. Okay. So they thought, okay, this will be great. We'll give the same car to our descendants. Did the same person win? Wouldn't that be cool? (laughs) No. But this wasn't the only thing they put in the time capsule. They put in other contemporary items. And the thought was that these items, when the vault was opened in, in 2007 would help give future generations an idea of what life was like way back in 1957. Okay. When asked why the 1957 Plymouth Belvedere was chosen, uh, the event chairman, whose name was Lewis Roberts Sr., was quoted that the uh, car represented... The car represented an advanced product of American industrial ingenuity with the kind of lasting appeal that would surely still be in style 50 years from now. (laughs) And if you don't know what the Belvedere looks like, it's one of those, uh, it was really sporty for 1957. It had the big fins on the back. It was very uh, aerodynamically designed to (laughs) echo the jet age and the coming space age. Right. It reminds me, if I'm thinking of the right car, it reminds me of a car that you would picture sitting in front of a um, drive-up burger joint. (laughs) Yes. Oh, yes. Like, my lights are on. Where's my malt? (laughs) The car was donated by Plymouth Motors and a group of Plymouth car dealers from the Tulsa area. It was nicknamed Miss Belvedere by a member of the committee organizing the event. And they added an additional prize of the value of a savings account started in 1957 with a $100 deposit. So they opened up a savings account, put 100 bucks in it in 1957. Oh, cool. And then whatever it was worth, you know, they, yeah. they would get that uh, as well. I love that. In 1957, the Plymouth advertising campaign was, suddenly, it's 1960. So it was decided that this contest would be named, suddenly, it's 2007. They put other things in the vehicle as part of the time capsule. They stuffed a bunch of stuff in the trunk and the glove compartment of Miss Belvedere. A partial list of items included a five-gallon container of gas, a case of motor oil. This was because they were concerned in the year 2000 that we would no longer be using fossil fuels. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so just in case, they put that in there. Smart. And then they also threw in a case of Schlitz beer. Nice. You know, back in the day when I worked at the Garland convenience store, there was a Pepsi delivery guy who needed a specific style of hat for one of his Halloween costumes. And he came in one day and I was wearing a Schlitz hat and he was like, can I borrow your Schlitz hat? And I was like, yeah, that's fine. Just bring it back next week. Right. And then he quit and never came back to the (laughs) store and never returned my Schlitz hat. Oh, I'm sorry, sweetie. Now I know what I'm getting you for Valentine's Day. A Schlitz hat. (laughs) They also included a woman's purse that they put in the glove box, and they filled the purse with what they felt at the time were typical contents of a woman's purse. Oh, jeez. There there was an unpaid parking ticket, 14 bobby pins, a compact, cigarettes, matches, two combs, a tube of lipstick, a package of gum, a plastic rain hat, pocket facials, $2.73 in bills and change, and a bottle of tranquilizers. <laughs> Welcome to the 1950s. I love that the last thing on that list is a bottle of Mother's Little Helper. Mother's Little Helpers. <laughs> That's right. Some of the other items included in the time capsule was a 48-star American flag, Uh, Letters from various state and city officials and documentation of a savings account, which was at the time valued at $100, um, along with entry postcards for the contest regarding the city's population. And the items were then sealed in a, uh, a steel capsule that was welded shut and painted white and then placed behind the car. Okay. Now, this was during the Cold War, so they had a lot of experience in building underground concrete bunkers, Um, and that's the model that they followed. It was promoted as being blast-proof. In case of a nuclear war and society was in tatters, the winner could still get their car. You can still take advantage of this great (laughs) festival prize. Because that's our first concern after the apocalypse yeah. is, yeah. am I going to get to take advantage of my festival prize? Yeah, a 1957 Plymouth with nuclear winter tires. So the concrete vault was 12 feet by 20 feet. It was underground. It was poured in place with uh, pneumatically applied gunite on its interior walls. It was dug in the courthouse lawn right in front of the courthouse with the top of the vault being about three feet below the surface. Miss Belvedere was then placed on a steel skid so that her tires would be off the ground. They wanted to make sure that that the vehicle was well-preserved. Oh, smart. And uh, the entire thing was lowered into the vault. In fact, it was lowered in a number of times so they could get lots of publicity photos. I'm sure. (laughs) The uh, newspaper guy showed up late, so they, they hauled it out. And, <laughs> and he took his oh, pictures. Jesus. And then they Ralph. Put, yep. And then a guy from another newspaper in another town came, so they lifted it out again. Uh, after it was lowered into place for good, it was coated in a wax-like petroleum-based corrosion inhibitor and was then wrapped in layers of sealed plastic. It was hoped that that would protect the car from moisture. Concrete beams were then set on top of the vault, and a lid was then set on the beams, then sprayed with gunite to seal the vault shut, following the replacement of dirt and sod in a bronze marker, wow. which was donated by a local cemetery. Um, the site was deemed secure, and this and the spot was marked. This is really in depth. Yes. Oh, yeah. God, if we did something like that here, it'd be like. 
Well, the Browns said that we could dig a hole in their farm, <laughs> and uh, so we went ahead and we hucked the stuff in there, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you dig it out. I don't know. There's a statue in front of the Bangor City Library that has a time capsule inside of it, and uh, I think it was put there in the mid-90s. Part of the contents are a number of first edition Stephen King books sure. with his signature on them, mm-hmm. and I know that one of the books said, because I, I saw it before they put it in there. It said from Stephen King, hello, people of the future. (laughs) That's wonderful. Did you get to put anything in the time capsule? No, no, I just watched. In the years leading up to the opening of this vault, there was a great deal of speculation as to the car's condition because obviously they put a lot of thought and time into trying to make sure that it uh, stayed in good shape. Yeah. Many felt the car would be found in near pristine condition based on the history. And clearly that's what the design, what it was designed to do. But others were concerned that moisture may have entered the vault despite all of the precautions because there was a nearby construction accident in 1973 that damaged a water main and it flooded the whole area. But there was no way to know for sure if um, that had any effect on the, the vault contents, yeah. and, until it was opened. Okay. So after 18 months of preparation by a group of volunteers, the vault was opened on June 14th 2007, 50 years to the day, during the state's centennial celebration. Now, in interviews, the 2007 Organizing Committee co-chairman Sharon King Davis acknowledged that she was the person that named the vehicle Miss Belvedere in the original ceremony 50 years before. Organizers had made arrangements with vehicle customizer Boyd Coddington under a sponsorship arrangement with Amsoil to use the sponsor's product to start the car up when it was removed from the vault. What a great opportunity. It's product placement, baby. (laughs) A local crane service had volunteered to lift the car out of the vault. They even went as far as to find an identical vehicle and practice lifting, lifting it to make sure that they didn't oh. screw it up. They could figure out what the center of gravity was. So people came from all over to see the exhumation of Miss Belvedere. <laughs> the topsoil was carefully scraped away, exposing the top of the sealed concrete vault. Excitement grew as the crane lifted the segments of the vault top to expose the contents that had not seen sunlight for 50 years. Excitement quickly turned to dismay when it was found that the car was sitting at about 2,000 U.S. gallons of uh, standing water and that four, it was about four feet high. It also appeared that at some point, the vault, which again was 12 feet high, had been completely filled with groundwater. Oh, wow. How? Covering the entire vehicle. Because of the construction accident? It could have been that or it just could have been groundwater leaching in. Over 50 the, years. Over 50 years. Now, the vault had been built to withstand a nuclear blast, but not to withstand groundwater. Um, <laughs> nature finds a way. The vault was not airtight. So they pumped out all the standing water to discover that the car was still wrapped in its original sealed plastic. Since the car was still wrapped in that original plastic covering, its exact condition was not immediately known. They hoisted the vehicle out of its resting place, lowered it onto a flatbed truck, and then transported it to the Tulsa Convention Center, where it was to be publicly unveiled the following day. They didn't let anybody see what it looked like. They wanted to do it all at once. Okay. Boyd Coddington and his team were on hand to evaluate and start the car. People from all over, thousands of people showed up 
for the unveiling. Mm -hmm. It was behind a curtain. They raise the curtain. They pull the plastic away from it. It was in terrible shape. Oh, no. It was just a big pile of rust, pretty oh, much. Oh, that's so sad. It was so bad that the keys had corroded away from the ignition. They were aluminum, so they corroded away, and pieces of the key were still in the ignition. The tires were all deflated. They were able to inflate the tires, which was which That's was nice. Good. The engine was so filled with sludge from the water that it, there was just no hope in even rebuilding the engine. This is such a bummer. <laughs> the body was rusted out. The interior was totally gone. The electrical system had been eaten away. It was just flimsy, rusty metal. Congratulations, future people. We buried some garbage for you. <laughs> so the next thing they did was to inspect what else had maybe survived or not survived. They found a bunch of rusty cans of Schlitz beer in the back. The five gallons of gas. Uh, that was in a jar so or a big um, uh, glass container. So that was okay. Cool. The oil was okay. How about those uh, tranquilizer pills? Those didn't survive. That <sighs> would have been the first thing I looked for. Following the unveiling... Especially after that disappointment. Yes. Miss <laughs> 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 Belvedere was temporarily placed on display at the local car dealership. Oh. We, we have to post photos of it because... Oh, okay. You have no real bad? Oh, it's real bad. <laughs> the car was intended to be, of course, the prize awarded to the individual or his or her descendant who came nearest to guessing Tulsa's population in 2007. That's right. So... In this case, would they be responsible for disposing of that garbage or would they be allowed to just kind of like, tell me what happened? Well, there were 812 entries. The winning entry went to a guy named Raymond Humbertston. Wonderful. The actual population in uh, 2007 was 382,457. He guessed 384,743. Oh, wow. So he was pretty close. Unfortunately, Raymond was dead. Yeah. He died in 1979. His wife died in 1988. Uh, they didn't have any children. The car in the savings account, the value which had grown to $666. Oh, nice. From its original value of 100 was awarded to Humbertson, Humbertson's surviving sisters and nephew. They were just shocked because Humbertson never lived in Tulsa. And as far as they were concerned, had never been to Tulsa. What? They had no idea that he had, you know, it was lost to history. Oh, I wonder if he had like a, like a secret lady in Tulsa. Oh, you got a whole backstory you're building well, now. Well, probably what happened was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> they had no idea the circumstances that led him to enter the contest in 1957. I do. Anita lived in Tulsa. Anita. Her name was Anita? Yeah. Yeah, in Tulsa? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she actually worked as a receptionist for the car dealership. Oh, And I so see. she was like, oh, come on, it'll be fun. And he's like, you know, it would be fun if we could get back to the hotel. And she's like, I wish you'd show some interest in my work. You go and you spend time with your other family, and then you won't even do the things that I want to do when you come here. Fine. Put down 384743 now. Meet me at Howard Johnson's, for God's sake, woman. And don't forget to bring those tranquilizers. So in November of that year, 2007, the relatives of Humbertson shipped the car to New Jersey. 
to a company called Ultra One. This company claimed to be able to restore uh, rusted metal without damaging the metal or the paint that, that it could just remove the rust. Wow. It was estimated that the process, the stabilization project, would take about six months, perhaps maybe a little bit longer because of the wax-like petroleum-based corrosion inhibitor that they had put oh, on no. the car and, and the decades of caked-on mud. Uh, there, was no, there were no plans to uh, disassemble or restore the vehicle. They just wanted to stabilize it, okay. get rid of the existing rust, and stop it from continually rusting. A couple of years later, in May of 2009, pictures really showed that Miss Belvedere's restoration was still underway, with the car's exterior having been virtually freed of its rust and mud concretions. Oh, wow. The project was, this according to Wikipedia, originally thought of as great publicity for Ultra One. However, after several years and $15,000 invested, they said, this is about as far as we're going to take it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it stayed in Ultra One's warehouse, the car did, for 10 years, while a permanent location was sought. They contacted the city of Tulsa and said, hey, would you like to have this car as part of a permanent display? And they went, mm, no. <laughs> That's no. <laughs> That's fine. And so then they contacted the Smithsonian Museum, and allegedly the response was, we are not America's garage. That was snarky. <laughs> Finally, in 2015, it was announced that Miss Belvedere would be permanently displayed at the Historic Auto Attractions Museum in, Rus in Roscoe, Illinois. It took a few years. But from what I understand, that's where it is now, Miss Belvedere, the exhumation of Miss Belvedere. Oh, wow. I got my information from Tulsa World, Reuters, Auto Week, and Wikipedia. I was waiting for, like, the, the big wow. Like, uh, turns out they were able to get all the rust off and they sold it for $7.2 billion. <laughs> or, turns out... Not only did they find Schlitz beer cans in the trunk, but the body of the mayor from 1957. Right. And now, that thing in the middle. Rose Davies was raised by foster parents. And throughout her entire childhood, she thought she was an only child. It wasn't until much later, when she was an adult, that she learned she had three brothers. She spent years tracking them down, and was finally successful in finding two of her siblings, Sid and John. But her third brother, Chris, was much more elusive. She spent many more years searching worldwide and then finally found him. Chris was living in the house directly across the street from her. Whether they're telling you about oddities or just recording themselves fat, stupid drunk at a hotel bar, they're entertaining AF. This is The Box of Oddities. You hear Kat and I talk a lot about aura frames, and there's a reason for that. We live in Ecuador, and our family is all over the place. In fact, Kat right now is up visiting her mom, and when I say up, I mean Maine. We got her an aura frame so we could share photos and videos from any device, and they'll instantly appear on the frame, which makes it easy because she's getting up there in years. It's easy to set up. It takes about two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app, and it's the perfect gift for Mother's Day. Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app, and if you're giving an Aura as a gift, 
You can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. It is the perfect gift for Mother's Day. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get 30% off free shipping and their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code oddities at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. We got a message from Aubrey on Facebook. I loved the bit by the announcer in the middle about the guy who shot a man for snoring too loud. (laughs) Because my maiden name is Harden, as in my great-great-great-uncle, great-great-great—oh, dang it, I missed a great. My (laughs) great-great-great-uncle, John Wesley Harden, you know— the guy who actually did that. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's one of the curator things. He says that uh, the only podcast that shot a man for snoring too loud and ended up becoming a New York sports writer. I did not realize that. That is amazing. Thank you so much, Aubrey. Another box of oddities effect. Weird. There have been a lot this week. So many. A lot. So many. What you got for me? What? What you what what you what you got for me? What 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 you got for me? I also saw on uh, Facebook someone wrote in that their uh, tiny baby child person mm-hmm. uh, will only stay still for her to do the diaper changing if <laughs> mom sings the what you got for me jingle during. <laughs> That's a weird thing to be singing when you're changing a child's yeah. diaper. What you got for me. <laughs> yeah. Let's hope it's not green. Mm. Um, September 10th, 1945, Fruta, Colorado. On September 10th, Lloyd Olson and Clara Olson were out killing chickens. They were going to be having a family dinner that night, and Lloyd knew that his mother-in-law really liked a chicken neck. 
And so, <laughs> okay, so. he was uh, keeping that in mind as he was uh, chopping the heads off of chickens. So they slaughtered about 40 or 50 animals uh, that day, but one of them did not behave like the rest. A five-and-a-half-month-old Wyandotte chicken got up, kicked about a bit, and ran and didn't stop. Lloyd thought, well, this is different, mm. that this chicken is still uh, chickening uh, after being beheaded. So they placed him in an apple box on the family's screened-in porch for the night. And the next morning, when Lloyd got up, the chicken was still alive. Shut up. Well, geez. Got to make different plans for dinner now. So Lloyd took the rest of the chicken carcasses to town to sell them at the meat market. And he took this one weirdo bird with him also. He popped him in the, the old horse and wagon uh, and started betting people beer or uh, whatever <laughs> that he had a headless chicken that was still alive. And this chicken was not just not dead. Like, he was still able to balance on a perch and walk, though clumsily. He attempted to preen. He tried to peck for food, unsuccessfully, of course. Is this Mike? Mike the Headless Chicken? It is Mike the Headless Chicken. I think I did this on a thing in the middle. But that just touched on, yeah. on it. So well, yeah. you're, you're going to do a deeper dive on Mike the Headless Chicken. That's what we're doing. Yeah, nice. we're talking about Mike the Headless Chicken. Or, if we're talking about his full name, Miracle Mike, Miracle the Mike. headless chicken. Hi, buddy. How did dinner go? Lloyd decided that if Mike had that much will to live, he would try to figure out a way to feed and water him. So he got an eyedropper and deposited water and food directly into Mike's neck hole. See, all of this defies science in my mind. <laughs> Well, not entirely, and we'll get to that. So it was becoming pretty obvious that this bird was special. And a week into his new life, Olson packed him up, and they went to the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, where the chicken was put through a battery of tests. I just picture a headless chicken on a treadmill, you know, with little diodes on his chest. <laughs> He's being encouraged to push it. Come on, Mike, you can do it. Get it, get it. And Mike's like, Fuck, I don't have a head. And I'm a chicken. Well, it was determined that the axe had missed the jugular vein and that a clot had prevented him from bleeding to death. And so most of his head had been severed, uh, but most of his brain stem and one of his ears was left on his body. And since most basic functions of a chicken, so like breathing and heart rate, as well as reflex actions are controlled by the brainstem, the bird was able to remain pretty healthy considering wow. what they're called central motor generators enabling basic homeostatic functions uh, were still being carried out in the absence of higher brain centers. Keep in mind also that birds possess a secondary balance organ in their pelvic region. Um, so that's mostly for flight. So chickens don't really use that that much. Right, but right. Um, he did have that to utilize 
uh, while he was tootling about. I see. Mike was photographed for dozens of magazines and papers, and he was featured in Time Magazine as well as Life Magazine. A sideshow promoter called Hope Wade had traveled nearly 300 miles from Salt Lake City, and they had a simple proposition. Let's take this bird on the road. Uh, We're going to hit the sideshow circuit, and we're going to make some money. But hurry. We don't know how long that clot's going to last. So that's when they decided they were going to call him Miracle Mike, the headless chicken. Uh, And based on how interested the townsfolk were uh, when Lloyd brought Mike into town, (laughs) uh, he thought, yeah, maybe others would like to see Mike. Maybe we can make some dollars. So Miracle Mike got a manager. (laughs) We don't even have a manager. I know. It's ridiculous. Good Lord. This bird doesn't even have a head, and he's doing much better than we are. Uh, So they set out on a national tour. The Olsons went to California and Arizona, and Hope Wade took Mike on a part of the tour to the southeastern U.S. when the Olsons had to return to their farm in order to harvest their farm goods. I just, I'm, I'm picturing the Olson twins. It's, yes, it's exactly what it is. It's Mary Kate and Ashley, and they have this headless chicken. I had a dream like that not too long ago. Except it wasn't the Olsen twins and there was no headless chicken. Okay. Well, there you go. But it was just like it other than that. Just like that. Yeah. Um, Can I just say, I'm so proud of Mary-Kate and Ashley. They've done so well for themselves. I know it's hard to be a child actor. (laughs) They hit up sideshows in New York, Atlantic City, Los Angeles, San Diego, and people were paying 25 cents to see Mike. The bird's travels were carefully documented by Clara in a scrapbook that is actually preserved by her family. Today, they keep it in a gun safe. Um, And according to BBC, people around the country were intrigued by Mike or Miracle Mike, and uh, but not everyone was pleased with the situation. One of the letters compared the Olsons to Nazis. However, wow. uh, another person from Alaska asked if they would be willing to cut off one of Mike's legs and put a wooden leg on there instead. So really, okay. people went in different directions. Uh, yeah, let's keep lopping off appendages until dinner's ready. Not great. Not a great suggestion. Male people were delivering letters addressed to the owners of the Headless Chicken in Colorado. And they were getting And them. they were getting these letters. That's glorious. Because when I order something from Amazon, and it looks like it might slightly be larger, just a little bit too large for the mailbox, they don't even try it. They just put a slip in there and make me go downtown and get it. I know. It's terrible. So Mike's popularity is growing, and his owner is earning about $4,500 per month. Mike is valued at ten grand, and that is the equivalent to about $115,000 today. In today's dollars. Yeah. He's not just gaining popularity, he's gaining weight. Mike gained almost <laughs> six pounds over the next year. I mean, for a chicken, that's a sturdy amount. Mm. Especially having to have his food eye dropped into his neck hole. Sure. They're feeding him a mixture of milk and water via an eyedropper. Occasionally, he gets small grains of corn and worms and such. Uh, but he's doing okay on that diet. Well, 
so they would take grains of corn and just stuff it down his throat with their thumb, like a like a like a Pez dispenser, something like that. I'm that's, not exactly sure that, how that. That's weird. Yeah, there's some parts of this were harder for me to investigate than others. Oh sure, so, I understand. Uh, jamming food down his throat hole was not something okay. I really looked into in depth. Okay. In an interview, Olson said that Mike was a robust chicken, a fine specimen of a chicken, except for the not having a head. <laughs> While returning from one of these road trips, the Olson stopped at a motel in Arizona, and in the middle of the night, Mike began to choke. They were unable to find the eyedropper that they used not just to feed him, but also to clear his airway, and Mike passed on. This was 18 months after having his head cut off. That's amazing. For years, Lloyd Olson told people he had sold the chicken to a sideshow circuit. He didn't want to admit that he had let the bird die. And it wasn't until he was nearing his death that he told his family that the bird died in a hotel in Arizona. What did he do with it? According to findagrave.com, Mike's body was lost or destroyed. It was never made clear what happened with hmm. the, the body of the headless chicken. And there was a recreation of that. At Ripley's, at believe Ripley's it or not. in uh, Orlando. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember seeing that. I remember seeing that and going, oh, and then I noticed at the bottom it said, this is a recreation. I was like, Ripley's, go. <laughs> Uh, but if you're on the corner of Mulberry and Aspen in Fruta, there is a statue of Mike, maybe five feet tall, an artist's rendition made of old metal implements like horseshoes and hand tools. Wouldn't it have been cool, though, really, if Mike the Headless Chicken was actually five feet tall? Wow. Yeah. I'd pay a quarter to see that. Sure, sure. Um, also, in the city of Fruta, they have an annual Mike the Headless Chicken Day. I told you I love a festival. It's the third weekend of May, generally. It started in 1999, and events there are the 5K Run Like a Headless Chicken Race, the Egg Toss, Pin the Head on the Chicken, the Chicken Cluck Off, and Chicken Bingo, in which chicken droppings on a number grid choose the numbers, oh, and then sure. you have to bet on right. which card will get the most poop on it, I guess. In 2019, it's estimated that over 21,000 people attended the Mike the Headless Chicken Day. The festival last year had to be canceled, but they are planning on having a festival this year in hoping to avoid any complications because of COVID. Mm. They have pushed it back to August, but they are planning on having a Mike the Headless Chicken Day once again. It'll be great to get back to normal. Right. Yeah, mm. that's what that mm. means. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I have real mixed feelings about this story, as you can probably guess. Yeah, I can uh, certainly understand. I did not realize that um, he went on the road for 18 months. 18 months. Wow. And yeah. died at a motel. Yeah. Like so many other comics and musicians. Yep. A uh, roadside hotel in Arizona can be a lonely place. Mm hmm so it's uh, sad, but also crazy interesting. Certainly um, is. The way that the, 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 the chopping didn't really do what, you know, well, you know. Yeah, I know, you know I know, what, you I know. know we have come across so many bizarre and unusual festivals that are, that are held around the world, mm. really. Uh, the Mike the Headless Chicken Days, the Dead Guy Days in Colorado. But maybe that would make a great second podcast is we go to these festivals 
Oh my gosh. And experience the festivals. I would love and that. And interview the people who are in charge of like chicken poop bingo. Yeah. No, I would love that. And I know you've wanted for years to go to the electric flower rave place. <laughs> so, electric daisy carnival. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So me and Skrillex, we're like, mm, you know. <laughs> so we could hit that up if you wanted. That'd be great. I'd love that. <laughs> I'm going to roll on in there. Wait a minute. <laughs> you can't do drugs when we're working. I don't do drugs at all. Well, <laughs> I don't do illicit drugs or illegal drugs at all anymore. Wow, there are a lot of qualifications. This is awful. This is awful. <laughs> Let me just clarify. <laughs> I do not do illegal drugs anymore. No, stop. Ah. <laughs> No, no. I mean, you know. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> I mean, there was a day. But that was decades ago. No, I just found. And it was just for a day. On our YouTube search history, microdosing mushrooms. <laughs> was that research for the show? It was research or... for the show. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. It was research for the show. <laughs> but it's interesting. It's, uh, it's, real, it's supposed to be really good for, for treating depression. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Scientists say. Mm -hmm. mm. Unfortunately, that's not legal. So I wouldn't do that. Anyway, thanks for hanging out with us, you guys. Yeah. Looking been forward weird. to seeing you next time. Until the Feed your head. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. Until then, is that. Yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> Keep flying that freak flag. <laughs> Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so. Let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.